0: You're listening to the CapEx Big Question Podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. So welcome, Shuram. Shuram Ashyam is the founder of EquityZen. It's a platform connecting shareholders in private companies with those investors that are seeking um, alternative types of investments. This is a a longstanding um, type of arrangement which has never really had a platform. It's been typical that investors in or shareholders in private companies have got literally no or very little liquidity, very little uh, potential to um, to gain liquidity for um, for the equity that they hold, and they typically have to wait for companies to go public. Um or have some other liquidity event before they can realize any of the gains that they may have achieved. and so equity Zen provides a platform to connect those two people um, and at the moment, there's tens of millions of dollars of new listings every month on the platform, and Shriram is front and center to seeing these private equity capital flows in real time. I find that quite interesting um, from the perspective from what we do and what our team here does, which is to look at distortions in markets, both public and private, for our own personal investments. And so I wanted to welcome you, Shurim. Um And if you could simply give me firstly a little bit of background to the RAISE Act, which is just, um, which is just passed through Congress. Um, I think it'd be useful for people to get a little bit of an understanding as to what that act is. And then I've got... A couple of things that I wanted to cover around that particular topic, and your thoughts on them.
1: Sure thing, Chris. Happy to uh, join you for this conversation. I think it's pretty cool what you're doing. Um, so the Raise Act, yeah, it's actually uh, you know uh, a major step, you know, in my view, in the evolution and the development of uh, secondary markets for private shares, and is a step in the right direction towards developing orderly and deep markets. And uh, you know, it was passed here in the U.S. by Congress in on December 4th, 2015, as part of a larger transportation bill. They just kind of tucked this one in there. But, you know, interestingly, it codifies, um, you know, an, a, a transaction structure that previously was, uh, shall we say, unwritten. And just to back up a little bit here, and I'll make this quick, I promise. Um, uh, you know, generally in the U.S., the securities laws require registration of securities that are being offered unless an exemption applies. And uh, you know, the sale of startup shares by an employee, which is the business that we're in, uh, to say, for example, pay off their school debt or put a down payment on a home, is still a sale of securities that has to comply with the securities laws. And uh, you know what? happens here is these aren't registered securities. These are, you know, private company, unlisted, illiquid, unregistered securities. So you have to find an exemption from registration. And that exemption, uh, up until the Rays Act, was known colloquially as the 4A1.5 exemption, because it sits between two explicit exemptions, 4A1 and 4A2, and it sits between them as an unwritten exemption. And it basically provides that for the resale of privately held shares, there is an exemption if the resale is limited to those purchasers who would have been eligible to purchase in the primary offering themselves. And what the RAISE Act does is take, you know, this disparate guidance and uh, interpretations that have been provided by the SEC, which is the U.S. securities regulator over the years, and turn it into something that's explicit and written down. And the RAISE Act basically provides that. Um, These sales are now explicitly permitted in what's known as a safe harbor, meaning, you know, uh, people that transact according to the structure are, you know, uh, explicitly safe from any registration requirements, any consequences of, um, you know, improperly doing a securities transaction if they follow the following steps.
0: Um,
1: And you know, there's certain requirements of being able to get this exemption, which include that the, the purchaser in the transaction has to be what's known as an accredited investor. That's a U.S. standard developed by the SEC, um, and it's a proxy for sophistication and financial uh, ability to withstand loss of, of an investment. Um, and if the person is a present, an accredited investor, also additionally, the transaction cannot have any use of general solicitation. General solicitation basically means putting out a public advertisement about your offering. Um, And um, additionally, and interestingly, I think this is where, um, you know, the most interesting part is is that there's certain information that's required to be provided to the purchaser. Um, You know, this includes some standard stuff like the name of the company, their address, and who the officers are, but also some... Uh, interesting or controversial aspects such as um, information um, requirement about the company relating to, um, you know, its most recent balance sheet, its profit and loss and other similar financial statement that stretch back for, you know, a few fiscal years um, that are prepared in accordance with GAAP. And, you know, this is where I think you're going to see a lot of the controversy occur around this, uh, this new development. Um, Additionally, you know, if there is an affiliation between uh, the seller and the company, you know, if they're a principal executive, that kind of thing needs to be disclosed. Um, And, you know, if you follow these requirements, uh, then, you know, you have this new way of um, being able to transfer private shares.
0: So, Triam, that would preclude essentially companies that are intending to raise capital at a seed level. Um, typically, in that the financials are probably not in existence for the time frame that is required, um, and really, what what we're talking about here is a, is a is a I wouldn't call it a mature company, but it would be a company that's been in existence for a, um, a certain period of time, um, whereby those financials are in place, and both where the um, and then with with the actual initial shareholders. Possibly the founders um, and management of the company are simply looking at obtaining liquidity in their stock.
1: That's right, Chris. Um, and it, I think that's right. And actually lines up well with what we see in the market for early stage seed stage companies. There's actually not a lot of liquidity pressure just yet. You know, for example, the employees tend to be granted equity options that vest on a four year schedule. Additionally the early investors you know typically they're investing as an angel investor you know with an understanding that it's going to take several years before liquidity or they're investing as a seed fund that has you know a capital committed fund but what we have seen you know zooming out a little bit and I think why this raise act is actually pretty interesting is that you know there's been a in the US you know, there's been a structural shift in capital formation and this is where it impacts the later stage companies more than the seed stage companies where companies are increasingly deferring the IPO as a means of capital formation and continuing to raise capital from private markets through what are known as mega rounds or private IPOs. And as a result, you know, companies are able, have been able to raise, uh, you know, significant amounts of money, IPO level money, we're talking about in excess of $100 and $200 million at very lofty valuations in, you know, the recent run up in, um, you know, uh, technology valuations and startups generally, but what that has created is that these companies are no longer going public, you know, in four or five years, which was the case 15 years ago, but are rather staying public 10, 11, 12 years. As a result, really two things have happened. The first is that the liquidity timeline of the employees has started to diverge with that of the company itself. And, you know, the employees need liquidity to address everyday kind of needs, such as, as I mentioned earlier, putting a down payment on a home, preparing for the birth of a child or paying off some school debt. On the flip side, you have traditional public market investors who have lost out uh, on a lot of value to the private markets. And a glaring example of this is that, you know, in 1997, a company like Amazon went public at a $400 million market cap. And there's a lot of room left for the growth, as we've seen the company is now in excess of $150 billion. But today, a company like Uber remains private at a $60 billion valuation. As a result, you know, these investors need to reach back into the private markets as a way to stake a claim on the growth. And that's why the Raise Act is actually really interesting, because um, this provides a way to facilitate this liquidity at the same time, provide the access. And so it's a response really to you know where capital formation is these days. And it is you know, something that impacts the later stage companies more. But you'll see that the same investors who invest in their early stage, perhaps they want a company they might have missed out on at the seed stage. They want a second bite at the apple. Or perhaps they want to diversify their portfolio by getting some late stage with growth type profile companies on there.
0: So it's interesting that you talk about this. This is, I mean, this is a topic that we've been covering um, ourselves for a long time. And the, the, the global capital flows moving into private equity from public is a couple of factors that have been at the forefront of why that's been taking place. One of them, of course, has been increased regulation and compliance costs and, and essentially um, hard costs that are associated with going public, which have meant that the risk-reward potential behind that is, has, has been skewed, leading to companies that have, you know, decided to stay private for longer. And then at the same time, um, an increasing amount of liquidity within the private space. And so, you know, while we can look, look at it and say, well, you know, there's not a lot of liquidity in, for example, a company like Uber or anything like that, Certainly if we contrast it to what well, the sort of setup that we had when I got into financial markets 20 odd years ago, it's vastly better. I mean, there was no second market, there was no there was literally no options for um, an individual accredited investor to participate in those types of deals unless they were at the very forefront and having the networks and the connections to actually be involved at an earlier stage. And so that sort of almost secondary market in the private uh, private equity space did not exist at all, and today we're seeing a lot of these um, changes taking place quite rapidly, and, and platforms like EquityZen, um taking advantage of that and facil- facilitating that those capital flows. So, I guess my question that is burning in the back of my mind is: this the Raise Act? How does how do you because look? you're at the forefront of these capital flows with EquityZen. And so you're helping facilitate them. You're seeing in real time um, what is taking place there. How do you believe that this RAISE Act is going to change or do you believe it's going to change the landscape for private company capital raising? And if so, what do you think that that looks like going forward?
1: Right. So I think what it'll do is, you know, help the issuers of these securities, these these uh, late stage startups, continue to fight liquidity pressure. So it'll reinforce this notion that the private markets are you know, uh, a suitable place for these companies to remain for an extended period of time. And this means longer to go to the IPO, but additionally, it means that access into these investments is going to now increase greatly as a result of the very explicit way to get these deals done. This means for you know, the investors, uh, for example, on, on, on both sides. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, you have investors that have been, you know, have boxed out of have been boxed out of access as a result of the shifts in capital formation. But on the other side, you have angel investors, early investors who, you know, they don't necessarily need to be along for the ride for 10, 12 years. They might have hit their target return profile within four to five years. And you know, everyone might be better off if they get. You know, uh, achieve some liquidity, take some chips off the table, and maybe redeploy that capital into new early stage investments. And so that's really you know, one way I, I think that this is gonna have an impact on on the private capital markets is that you know it's gonna make it easier for the early stage folks to continue staying involved in the process without having their capital locked up and their unrealized returns locked up for too long, and it'll help the individual investors who used to be public market investors, you know, get access to the growth of, of technology companies. But I think a lot of this is really going to hinge on how this plays out in practice, particularly about this disclosure requirement I, I discussed earlier, where, you know, you, the purchaser needs to be made availed of uh, financials, you know, gap financials, uh, balance sheet and similar financial statements, which, you know, typically the way companies have played it that we've seen is that they want to remain arm's length and not a lot of information is you know available in these deals, you know, outside of the very large deals with institutional buyers where, you know, there's, you know, one or two folks that are interested in participating and it's worth the company's time to set up a data room and perhaps arrange for a call and share information. So if the companies are going to have to start making this kind of information available on a broad basis, I think that's going to be a major point of friction that needs to get sorted out. And ancillary to this is going to be, you know, um, you know, we have a concept in securities law about um, liability for material misstatements and material omissions. And whenever you have disclosure, you got to think about the liability around this. And if you're going to create a new avenue for liability for the company based around this disclosure requirement, you know, what if, you know, they make an omission or a material misstatement in the financials that are provided, um, you know, how do we deal with that liability is a big question that needs to get solved. So I think, you know, the situation is if we really want the RAISE Act and uh, what it provides, to be adopted broadly by the market and for it to really do what Congress intended, we're going to need someone to step in, and that someone's going to be the SEC to help answer some of these ambiguities um, and perhaps, you know, uh, shed some light through, you know, guidance. What's known as CDNI or Compliance and Disclosure Interpretations um, to address some of these ambiguities. Um, there's also a potential rulemaking process that's possible, but uh, you know, from what I gather, you know that. Uh, Rulemaking is not required, and you know what I've heard is that it's not it's not really in uh, the on on the SEC's mind right now, but you might see some of this uh, compliance and disclosure interpretation that tells you practically how you know participants in in this structure can move forward.
0: so that's really I guess there's probably an avenue that opens up here for service providers such as yourselves to provide. The kind of, um, I guess, legal infrastructure for companies that actually wish to um, sell some of their private equity, um, because you know, having having dealt with this in our own business and having invested in close to hundred private companies over the, over the years, we both know that a lot of companies just don't have the um, they don't have their documents in line. They don't have um, necessarily their financials audited and up to speed, um, a lot of the, the disclosure can be addressed, but oftentimes the companies are not familiar with what sort of disclosures are required. Um, so do you sort of see a, um, a rush to service and facilitate the transactions that will come on the back of the RAISE Act? For example, in Equities M are you finding increased interest from private companies that are looking for, assistance in facilitating those transactions? Uh,
1: we are certainly seeing that. Um, I wouldn't say it's a result of the RAISE Act. I think it's more a result of the companies staying private longer and then dealing with employee issues around liquidity. Um, you know, this, if you're you know, uh, someone in senior management, if you're one of the founders of a company, uh, this becomes an issue that's near and dear to you because it basically ends up having an impact on morale and retention. Um, you know, the reality is that if people can't address their financial needs, the talented folks can get up and go to Google or Facebook where there is a liquid market for the stock and where they will get paid uh, a little bit better on a cash basis as well. Um, as we all know, startups are um, equity rich and cash poor. So addressing this liquidity need is certainly something that's top of mind, I think, for the progressive companies um, that realize that this is a way to uh, provide a benefit to the com- to the employees and allow the folks that have created a lot of the value to share in that value creation, you know, in a controlled way, of course. Um, and I think certainly there is, you know, room for a, and an opportunity for service providers to step in and do this in an efficient um, and technology-enabled way. You know, there's, as you mentioned, there is a legal structure and documentation required around this. And... Uh, you know, I don't think it's necessary to pay our outside counsel how much ever they charge in the U.S. or the top firms, partners can bill in excess of $1,000 an hour uh, to help figure these things out. You know, the service providers such as Equities Center are here to do just that. And, you know, up until you know recently, a lot of this marketplace has been uh, organized around. Uh, it's been fragmented, you know, really, and it's been organized around you know, free agent brokers and you know some small buy-side funds that are all the participants, but there's no platform around which these things are organized. And you know that's where I think there's an opportunity, and that's kind of why we're doing what we're doing is to create a centralized way in which the secondary markets can operate, but also operate efficiently, where you know you could do smaller deals at a profit, where you can account for the interests of uh, all the stakeholders, including the company, not just the buyers and the sellers.
0: Yeah, you you bring up a good point around the legal side of things, and um, quite frankly, what you Eugene's are doing at Equity Zen, I commend you on because within this industry, and again, having transacted a lot of um, business, there are essentially standardised documents that are required, um, and paying thousands of dollars per hour and i think a thousand dollars an hour is actually you know can be quite light for legal counsel top legal counsel in these sorts of things and it's quite frustrating when you see that taking place on a continuous basis where essentially you have what can and should be a standardized templatized technology driven procedure um and i think that that in itself is a growth industry which quite frankly puts um puts a lot of the existing service providers in the crosshairs of a technology wave that that'll get rid of their jobs, which uh, I'm not unhappy about. Um, but certainly that's that's something that I know you guys you gents are doing and we're seeing it a lot it's one of the it's one of the sort of key focuses that we look on or look at in in Serif where we're looking for investment opportunities where you have these um, technologies that are distorting and changing markets. Um, and disrupting them and so um, that's you know that that the legal the accounting um, side of business is much of it is is can be templatized it can be standardized and it's exciting to see some of the companies coming through and and doing just that um, because it creates a whole lot more liquidity. it creates um, cost reduction for Younger companies that don't have the capital spend to, um, to spend to to spend a thousand dollars an hour on legal counsel, um, and that's you know as you filter that through an economy, that's very very good for any economy. So I commend you guys on that. And one last question that I've got before I let you go, Shrim, and this is something that I've I you know I have two devils on my shoulder, I guess, in terms of capital flows in and out of private companies. We've seen some stellar evaluations that have come through in the last sort of, I guess, post post 2000, really, which is kind of the last down cycle in, in venture capital. And part of that is, is attributable to um, extremely disruptive technologies that have really changed the landscape of existing businesses, whether it be Uber or Airbnb, disrupting hotel chains and Uber, the taxi industry and you know, there's a number of different examples. Um, and so my question, I guess, is when when I look at um, the, the capital flows at the moment, there's a there's a certainly a tapering off of capital, um, both in the in the IPO space, you know, public markets, as well as now in the sort of venture capital space and certainly in the angel space. And I wonder with the changes in the legislature, what sort of effect that has, and whether it sort of buffers what looks to me to be a, a a little bit of a tempering of enthusiasm um, coming into the market. Um, I don't know if that's something that you sort of look at, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it because, as I mentioned, you're sort of at the forefront. You're seeing a lot of these businesses coming onto your platform, and you're seeing the interest from you're kind of seeing the interest from both sides, right? You've got the buyers and the sellers. So I'm just curious what are your
1: That's right. So, you know, what's going on now in the U.S. is the public stock markets have gotten off to a rocky start and, you know, the Nasdaq, you know, which is a bit of a proxy for technology stocks is is down substantially. And what it's pointed out is that, you know, without liquidity, you know, when your money is is locked up in some of these private investments, um, it's hard to diversify. It's hard to time the market. And you know, something where you had you know, uh, significant um, unrealized returns can start going sideways quickly and there's really not much you can do about it unless there are robust secondary markets. And so what we, we've seen you know, some interesting activity here, which is that uh, you know, some of the early stage institutional folks are interested in selling some more of their positions. Very often what trades on equities in this platform is common stock. And, you know, what the benchmark for valuations is set by institutional investors investing in preferred stock. So we've seen, you know, the spread between common and preferred start to widen out a bit. Um, And, you know, and and we've also seen in the primary markets uh, a tightening up, um, meaning, you know, as you're saying, in the early stage, it's gotten harder to raise, your seed round and the later stage it's harder to raise that mega round that i referred to earlier we're seeing either a you know a that companies are starting to raise down rounds for example foursquare or b we're starting to see uh greater protective provisions in place such as ratchets or um you know increased liquidation preference things like that that you know are going to start making these mega rounds a little bit unattractive um and as a result, you know I think it, something like the Raise Act is actually quite important because if that can start helping to foster, uh, you know, deep and liquid secondary markets and make it a little bit easier to transact on these markets, then uh, you know, it's a, people can make a little bit more nuanced decisions about their you know private company holdings. Um, you know, it, especially when you're an employee in these shares in in these companies. Then, you know, especially the ones that are doing really well, you know, the reality is if they're doing really well, then, you know, 99% of your net worth is tied up in this one company and it's subject to the volatile swings of what happens in that company, whether it's tied to the company's fundamentals or tied to macro factors. And, you know, it's just not a wise way to manage one's wealth. Um, So being able to diversify, whether as an employee or as an early investor in these companies is, is huge. You know, especially if, you know, people have, you know, investors form theses around where the market is. And many folks, as you've seen in the press, have decided that the U.S. tech sector has hit a peak, but you need to, you know, you, that needs to be actionable. Um, so if it hits a peak, then maybe if you were in the seed round of, you know, a quote unquote unicorn, it's worth taking some chips off the table. And so that's what we're here for. And that's what we hope the uh, the RAISE act can help to facilitate.
0: Certainly there's a couple of factors that are weighing on any of these things because when you invest in a private company, you're always, you're always attributing to that private company an, an illiquidity discount and a substantial one, the earlier it is. Um, so that's always been a metric that um, venture capitalists and angel investors and uh, even private equity M&A guys are, are working with. Um, and if you take that away... Um, or at least you reduce that illiquidity risk. You the flip side of it is that you typically increase the valuation, right? Um, if if you and I could buy Apple stock, which we can today, and we can trade that um, in a deeply liquid market, we don't have the same risk as if we were to be buying into uh, Palantir or Uber or you know um, any of those. Still privately held companies, and so as such, we'd actually pay less than less for an Uber or a Palantir than we would for Apple. It just stands to reason. So bringing in that that liquidity um, has the real potential to increase valuations. At the same time, it's just so you know these are these are interesting. There's a couple of factors really, I guess, at work, and and there are contradictory factors in that. You like we just mentioned, you there's a cooling in the market place. Um, and at the same time, there is an increased um, potential for liquidity in the private space. So the two opposing factors. Um, and you know, we're not going to stop cycles, market cycles, but certainly having a more efficient marketplace is better for everybody all around. I want to thank you for your time, Shurim. It's been it's been excellent. Really appreciate your insights, and I commend you guys on what you're doing at Equity Zen. I think it's awesome, um, and Best of luck to you, gents, and we'll be watching this space pretty closely to see what transpires and how this affects private capital, and we look forward.
1: Great. Chris, thanks so much. I uh, Thanks for having me, and I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to CapitalistExploits.at.